The reading today comes from 1 John 5, verses 6 to 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. My wife and I used to live in a place called Brixton in London. And to give you an idea of what Brixton was like, it's a multicultural place uh, that is known for two things. First, being artsy and cool. And second, for knife crime and gang violence. And so it's kind of in the process of reluctant gentrification. So think uh, East Vancouver, all the cool parts of East Vancouver, plus gang violence. And uh, at the center of Brixton is the tube station. And the tube station acts as almost a gravitational pull for all of the craziness that happens in Brixton. So if something happens in Brixton, it's more than likely going to happen outside the tube station. And one of the Permanent features of the tube station are the street evangelists. And now they come in all sorts of different wonderful and weird religions and cults. So you've got the Nation of Islam guys. You've got the Fire and Brimstone guys. You've got the, the Black Israelites, who, if you don't know, are an interesting bunch. And all of them are making different claims about what is true about God. With seemingly the only thing in common being two things. One, they're all really angry. And two, they've got terrible sound systems. And I used to pass these guys every day on my way to work. And I would think to myself, man, it really takes this perfect combination of low self-awareness and high self-confidence to do this. Um, then one Easter, my pastor, the pastor at the church that I went to at the time, asked me if I wanted to speak at an event called the Brixton Churches Together Easter Event. Catchy title. And uh, honestly, I felt honored. I felt uh, validated in my gifts. And of course, I humbly accepted and prepared what I can only describe as a beautifully crafted Easter homily. And I made my way to the event. Turns out... Uh, that the Brixton Churches Together Easter event consisted of myself, 13 random people from my church, a guy with a life-size wooden cross, and of course, a terrible sound system. I should have known, because of course, it was located outside the Brixton tube station. Here's what I thought. I thought, first, now I know why all of these guys are so angry. Second, I definitely have the wrong combination of self-awareness and self-confidence. But third, as I stood there with all of these competing voices to the claims of the truth of God, I thought to myself, 
Honestly, how do I know that I'm right? How do I know that I'm right and these guys are wrong? If you've been tracking with our First John series, you'll have seen that the, the backdrop of the letter, the context of the letter, is that an alternative teaching is being proposed to the one that John is proposing. So there's an alternative teaching to the gospel that John is proclaiming. And John is going to show us today how, even among the alternative voices, we can be confident that what we believe about God is true. And so that's what I want to ask today. That's what I want to look at today. How can we be confident that what we believe about God is true? How can you be confident that what you believe about God is true? And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at three sources of confidence that John gives us in the text. The first is the evidence for God. The second is the experience of God. And the third is the authority of God. So the evidence of God, the experience of God, and the authority of God. Let's start with the evidence of God. When we think about the different evidences that we have for God, there's lots of compelling arguments from philosophers and theologians and apologists. And the arguments suggest that we can know something about God through creation. In fact, the Bible suggests this. The psalmist, for example, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And again, in the New Testament, Paul says at the start of Romans, he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, what both authors here are implying is that there is evidence for the invisible God through the visible world. Creation is almost like a piece of artwork, a sculpture or a painting that tells us something about the artist. And I'm sure you felt that as you've, as you've walked in creation, as you've walked in the, the mountains in Vancouver. There is evidence for the invisible God through the visible world. But John here is going to make a bigger claim. In fact, the apostles together, they make a bigger claim. They're going to say, not that they have perceived something from examining the artwork. They're going to say, they know. They've met the artist. Remember, John started this letter by reminding us that what he was teaching was not a new philosophy or a new ideology, but that he was preaching Jesus Christ. The one who had, he had seen and he had heard and he had touched. And again, now he is pointing us back again to Jesus. He is saying, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you want to know my theology, here's my theology. Here's my evidence for God. It's the man, Jesus Christ. You see, we don't teach here, do we? That we have philosophized our way to God. We teach here that God has come to us in Jesus. So, 
Our evidence for God is not just creation, broadly speaking, not our speculations about creation, broadly speaking, but the one who Paul calls the image of the invisible God, the historical, in fact, the empirical person of he who came, Jesus Christ. Our evidence for God is Jesus. Now, before I move on, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I passed over the water and the blood bit pretty quickly. That's the fairly obscure bit about this text. Why does John say, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ? Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Well, this is likely referring to Jesus' baptism and his death. And so these, these two almost bookends of the earthly ministry of Jesus, his baptism and his death, as, as Jesus passes through the water and he passes through death on the cross. And the reason John is mentioning it is because it appears as if the background of this is that the false teachers are trying to teach an alternative Jesus. It's, uh, it's Jesus, but it's not quite Jesus. It's, it's the Jesus that they would have preferred rather than he who came. Here's a problem with that. We don't get to do that with Jesus. We don't get to do that with Jesus. You see, when it comes to our knowledge of God, we can all have different interpretations of the artwork of creation, like art critics all standing around speculating as to what the artist intended and who the artist is. But when the artist shows up, the time for speculation is over. We don't get to have a Jesus who came by water only and not by water and blood. We don't get to have a Jesus who was good and not God. We don't get to have a Jesus who, who lived this exemplary life and who didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. We don't get to have that Jesus. And let me pause quickly and ask an, an honest question of us as we sit in our homes. Because there's, there's something for us to consider here, honestly. Do we accept all of the claims that Jesus made about himself? All of the claims that Jesus made about us. All of the claims that are proposed to us by the apostolic witness in Scripture. Do we accept all of those claims? Do we accept him as he has revealed himself to us? Or do we just kind of pick and choose the bits that we like of Jesus? You know, when we do that, when we pick and choose, when we caricature him, we effectively reject him. We effectively reject him. The encouragement for us today is that God has evidenced himself for us in the person of Jesus. That's where we can find our confidence. But the caution, the other side of the coin, the caution to this is that we will lose all of that confidence if we revert back to a speculative art critic it ignores the artist who came. So we have, how can we have a confidence that what we believe about God is true first? We start with the evidence for God in the witness of his son, Jesus Christ. Second, I want to look at the experience of God, the experience of God. Verse six starts, 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If you've been paying attention to our First John series, you'll have noticed the parallels between John's gospel and this letter. And, and the reason for that is because John is simply passing on the teaching that he has received personally from Jesus. And so when John speaks of the Spirit, he's referring to the one that Jesus promised in John 14, where he says, And I will ask the Father, and I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Maybe you're familiar with the story, but uh, after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait, to wait for the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what, maybe one way to think about this, this movement is to say, if God's sending his son to us, it, it, it was a move from beyond us to before us, from beyond us to before us. When God pours out his spirit, it's so that he might go from before us to within us. So that's the move from beyond us to before us to within us. But why? Why, why would he do that? In the UK, uh, we have a national treasure called Sir David Attenborough, and he's famous for hosting TV shows on the natural world. In fact, there's a new one out on Netflix now called Life in Color. And in an interview with Sir David Attenborough, he was asked the God question. Having spent his entire life looking at the natural world, could there be a God, he was asked. Now, he's actually quite anti-religion, but the answer that he gave was really interesting. He said that he had an experience once of tearing the top of a termite hill off and seeing all of these termites go about their busy lives. And they were obviously completely unaware of his presence, completely unaware that he was there. And the reason for that, he says, is because they didn't have the sense perceptions. They didn't have the faculty to be able to, to see and to, to perceive him. And so his answer is, there could be a God. You know, I, I just don't know. He's, he's agnostic. He just doesn't know. There could be a God. But we simply don't seem to have the sense perception. We don't seem to have the faculties to be able to perceive him. What's interesting about this answer is it's quite close to the answer that the Bible gives. Look at 1 Corinthians and what Paul says. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's he saying here? He's saying, he's saying in our sin, we are blind to God. We can't see or know God. Just as the termites were blind to Sir David Attenborough, so too we, in our sin, are unable to see and to know and to experience God. You know, in order to know God, in order to experience God, we need not only the revelation of God in Christ, 
But we need to have internally, as Paul says in Ephesians, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. The work of the Spirit is to make us receptive to God. And if you're a Christian today, you know this, but, but not just here. You, you experience this. You feel this. I was in the kitchen the other day with Sarah and we were listening to some music and we were listening to an old Hillsong classic called Soon. And one of the lines in the song stood out to me. It said, though I have not seen him, my heart knows him well. Though I have not seen him, my heart knows him well. And I thought to myself, that's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit in my life. And you know, if you're not a Christian watching today, it's very, very difficult for me to explain that to you. I can point you to Jesus and point you to the evidences of his coming, but it's very difficult for me to explain to you the experience of God. But if you are a Christian today, you felt this. You have felt what Paul describes in Romans 5 of the, the love of God being poured into your heart by the Spirit who has been given. You know, you felt this. You, your heart knows him well, doesn't it? Your heart knows him well. One of the early church leaders was a guy called Irenaeus. And interestingly, Irenaeus was taught by a guy called Polycarp. And Polycarp was taught by the Apostle John, who wrote this letter. And so it goes, John, Polycarp, and Irenaeus. And Irenaeus famously said that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are the two hands of the Father. And this is the picture that John is giving us here. He's saying there's this external work of God in Jesus, revealing himself, evidencing himself for us in creation. And now there's this internal work of the Spirit working in us in order that we might receive and know and perceive God. And these are, these are two arms of the Father, these two embracing arms of the Father. They're both working together in order that we might know him well. Now, again, there's a caution. There's a caution here. Look, look what John says in verse 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. These three agree. Why would he say that? Why would he uh, point out the fact that they agree? Well, again, context here. It appears as if this group that had, had left the church had not only got Jesus wrong, they got the spirit wrong too. Apparently, a spirituality was being proposed, an experience of God was being proposed that was completely disconnected from the person and work of Jesus, which, when you think about it, sounds a lot like Vancouver. And John here, he, he wants to emphasize the oneness of the testimony of the Spirit and Jesus. You see, there are three that testify, but one testimony. Three that testify, but one testimony. Now, when we look at the New Testament and we, we consider for a second how the Spirit is described, look, look, look what it says. It says that he, he confesses Jesus as Lord. He draws us to Jesus. He, he testifies to the work of Jesus. He affirms and affects the work of Jesus in our lives. He, he reveals the truth of who Jesus is. He bears fruit in us in order that we might become more like Jesus. And he, he gives gifts to Jesus' church. Christ City, there is no true spirituality that does not glorify and point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Let me say that again. There is no true spirituality that does not point to and glorify the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the caution in this. The implication of this is that if you have a spiritual experience, if you believe that God is telling you something, or you hold to a spirituality that does not glorify and point to Jesus, that spirit is not from God. That spirit is not from God. If you want to know if a spiritual experience or the spirituality that you have is from God, the question to ask yourself is, did it glorify and point to the person and work of Jesus Christ? So, how can we be confident that what we believe about God is true? First, we have the evidence of God in the witness of he who came, Jesus Christ. And second, we have the experience of God, this internal witness of the Spirit who glorifies and points us to the evidence of God, Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want to look at the authority of God, the authority of God. Look from verse 9. It says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. I want to try a quick exercise, if I may. I want you to ask yourself the question, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he indifferent? Is he, is he kind or is he cruel? Is he, is he close or is he dis distant? Now, once you've figured that out in your head, I want you to ask the question, who told you that? Who told you who God is? You see, ultimately, questions of what we believe are questions of who we believe. Questions of what we believe are questions of who we believe. And we, and we know this. We know this. We, when we're born, we don't just experience and interpret the world. Our parents, in some way, interpret it for us. They, they give us a world. And as we grow up, our, our teachers and our culture and the media, they all tell us something about the world. And even when we, we challenge one of these authorities, the challenge always comes from another authority. And so here's the question. Not just what do you believe, who have you been believing? Who have you believed? Maybe consider for a second the, the loudest voices in your life right now. Those that speak into your life, that tell you something about who you are and who God is. The podcasts you listen to, the, the YouTube channels that you subscribe to, the, the books you read, the celebrities you follow, the mentors you have, the, the friends you have. Who are the authorities that speak into your life and what do they tell you about God? Almost in response to this, John says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater He's saying we, re we receive the testimony of men and women all the time. He knows that knowledge works by authority. 
But this isn't just a, another testimony of man that, that John is proposing. He's saying God has spoken and he's spoken to us by his son, attested by the spirit. He's saying the testimony of God is greater. Interestingly, when we look back at John's letter, the, this is the third time that John has used this greater language. So in chapter 3, he says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. In chapter 4, he says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And now in chapter 5, he's saying the testimony of God is greater. At each turn, John is saying, God is greater. God is greater. God is greater. Throughout the letter, John has been comparing the other voices in our lives, our, our hearts, the world, other men and women, and comparing those to the greater voice, the greater testimony of God in our lives. Christ City, when our heart speaks, the testimony of God is greater. When, when the world speaks, the testimony of God is greater. When other men and women around us speak, the testimony of God is greater. In one sense, the testimony of God is greater by virtue of who has spoken. God is infinitely greater than our hearts, the world, and other men and women. God is infinitely greater. But in another sense, the testimony of God is greater because of what it says. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you're a Christian here watching today, you have believed in the witness of the Son. You have received the witness of the Spirit. But not only that, you have, you have entrusted yourself to the greater authority of God. But his testimony says over you, you were lost and dead in your sin, but he came. He revealed himself to us and he lived the life that we couldn't lead. He died the death that you should have died. And he conquered sin and death on the cross and overcame it and rose from the grave in order that you might be released from the bondage of sin in your life and you might receive that new life yourself. Christ City, the testimony of God speaks a better word than our hearts, than the world, than the testimony of man. So to end. You may never find yourself accidentally street preaching at Brixton Tube Station. But my guess is there will come a time in your life where you are confronted with the question, how can I be confident that what I believe about God is true? And what John has shown us today is that we can be confident first because we have the evidence of God the witness of he who came, Jesus Christ. And second, we can be confident because we have the experience of God in us, the internal witness of the Spirit who glorifies and points us to Jesus. And thirdly, and ultimately, we can be confident that what we believe about God is true is because it's not our testimony. 
It's not what we have, have philosophized and come up with. We have entrusted ourselves to a greater authority. In Christ's city, the testimony of God is greater. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that we can be confident in your testimony. We thank you, God, that you have evidenced yourself to us in Jesus. And we thank you that you have poured your spirit into our hearts in order that we might know that testimony, in order that we might experience that intimacy with you, in order that our hearts may know you well. Father, would you forgive us when we have trusted in our own authority, when we have listened to our hearts, we have listened to the world, and we have listened to the testimony of man and not your testimony over us. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.